Recently, there has been a, a burgeoning discussion concerning how people of faith should live in a world in which an apparent culture shift is taking place. I myself am a bit skeptical about the idea of a culture shift actually taking place, but I can understand the thinking behind the idea. I also think that for the sake of a beneficial and illuminating conversation, granting the premise of a cultural shift is actually important. If we grant that a, a shift in the culture is taking place in the Western world, and that that shift constitutes a, a freshly energized opposition to Christianity, how should Christians respond? How should we live in such a context, or such a moment, as some have called it? In the growing discussion about a Christian's options for life in the Western world, various options have emerged. There is the Benedict option, which was one of the first options that was recently proposed. It was followed by the Kuiper option, after Dutch Reformed theologian and politician Abraham Kuyper. The Buckley option, after the Roman Catholic and politically conservative thinker William F. Buckley Jr. The Wilberforce option, after the 19th century staunchly evangelical and English politician who was instrumental in bringing the slave trade in England to a screeching halt. And, and wouldn't you know it, there's also a Baptist option, or a Paleo-Baptist option, as the one who first formulated the idea would prefer to call it. One of the things I find so amusing about all of this is that it's a, a stereotypical Western impulse to provide more options than we can, more choices than we can almost kind of handle. Um, I just named five options, but there are actually more that have been put forward just in the last 13 months. And they're, uh, they're, they're actually a stimulating conversation to engage in, to listen to. There's much food for thought in that discussion. For example, uh, a proponent of the so-called Benedict option makes the following observation. He writes, quote, We need to realize the radical nature of the present moment which requires a radical response, a kind of deliberate, strategic retreat so that we can tend our own gardens, so to speak, and cultivate deep roots that our kids and their kids and their kids' kids will need to hold on to the faith through the dark times ahead, end quote. There are lots of assumptions buried in there that need close and careful examination, but that's thought-provoking, isn't it? Perhaps that option resonates with you. But is it the right option? Is a strategic retreat the right option for Christians? Is a strategic retreat the right option for Christians who live and worship in Northern Virginia? Would that communicate love for God? Would that communicate love for our neighbors, those who need to know the love of God? One of the reasons that I suggested that I'm not so keen on granting the premise that we live in an era in which we are undergoing a cultural shift is that down through the ages, the people of God have gone through times of more intense and less intense opposition. We see one of those times of more intense opposition emerging in the psalm that we're actually studying together this morning, Psalm 11. David is confronted by an enemy that threatens him, and he... He surveys his options. He not only surveys his options, but he also chooses one. Given the, the cultural moment that we live in, I think that we have much to learn from David's response to his circumstance. 
And it is my prayer that as we look at God's word this morning, that we would not be given to fear, but that we would give ourselves to taking refuge in our faithful God and calling others to take refuge in Him too. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles, open up your Bibles to Psalm 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you can find Psalm 11 beginning on page 452. 452 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, uh, let me just offer a little bit of background of our study. The Psalms are a wonderful collection of prayers, poems, and songs of the ancient people of God. Often they were meant to be used in Israel's corporate worship, their gatherings together. They are simple and profound, and they teach us something of the breadth and depth of the emotional experience of God's people. If you haven't spent much time in the Psalms, I'd happily commend them to you for your regular Bible reading and prayer, especially if you're experiencing different emotions toward God that are occurring as a result of the events that are occurring in your life. The Psalms can help you give voice to your sorrow and to your joy, to your grief and to your gratefulness. Psalm 11, it actually continues to kind of work out the themes of the, the Psalms that precede it. Psalm 7, 8, 9, and 10 in particular. They all express something of what we find in Psalm 11. God is declared to be a believer's refuge in Psalm 7. God is majestic, authoritative, and concerned about His creation. We see that in Psalm 8. The Lord sits enthroned, Psalm 9. The Lord is a king who will judge the world, Psalm 10. And with these themes in mind, I just want to express to you how Psalm 11 is organized. Psalm 11, it opens up with an initial confession from the psalmist, from David. He takes refuge in God. A conversation with real concerns quickly follows there in verses 1 to 3. Then in verses 4 to 6, David expresses the reason why he has confidence in his initial confession, that the Lord is his refuge. And finally, there in verse 7, we learn the psalmist's commission until the consummation. That is, we see what motivates his life on earth until he reaches heaven. Read Psalm 11 now. To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, Psalm 11, in it we see a conversation with real concerns. The ground of confidence for those who take refuge in God and their commission until the consummation. We're going to study these seven verses under three headings. Concern, confidence, and commission. Let's begin with our first point, concern. Here we're looking at verses 1 to 3. 
where we see this conversation with real concerns unfold. Read verses 1 to 3 again. Psalm 11, verses 1 to 3. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, in verse 1, you'll notice there, that David opens this psalm with a confession of faith. The Lord is his refuge. The Lord is the one in whom he will seek safety and protection. In short, David trusts in the Lord. And how appropriate for David and for all to do so. The Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. He is faithful and true. He is righteous and just, as we'll learn a little later in this psalm. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 makes clear. David, he has confessed his faith. But notice, he raises a question. He asks, how can you say to my soul? And then he goes on to quote what someone has said to him. Seems as though David has been in a conversation with someone and they are concerned. They see David's situation and they think that he needs to act. He needs to run. He needs to fly like a bird to the mountains. The historical circumstances of this uh, situation aren't specified, but it is clear David is not safe. David needs to get out of town. The wicked are prepared to indiscriminately fire at the upright in heart. That's what the imagery of, of bending the bow and fitting the arrow and shooting in the dark are all meant to communicate. Not only is David unsafe, but so are those who, like David, have confessed their faith in God. The upright in heart, God's people, are not safe. Like the historical circumstances, David's conversation partner is also unknown. Maybe there is a friend or, or a, a royal advisor who is giving this counsel to David, to King David. Maybe these are David's own inner thoughts about his circumstances. Whatever the case may be, David's, the conclusion is the same. David needs to flee. In the midst of this intense opposition, there is a sense of, of hopelessness. We get that right there in, in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This idea of the foundations is found throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament Scriptures. As one scholar explained, they are a metaphor for the order of society. This order has been established by Yahweh at creation, but God's justice and law are being replaced by human autonomy and its resultant anarchy. Uh, the sense of kind of what's being communicated here is, is look, if, if society and justice have so deteriorated that no protection can be hoped for or, or found for those who are actually trying to honor the Lord, then, then what can we do? Another Christian put it this way, quote, in a world and society run amok, where the dignity of life is casually ignored and raw power rules in the place of justice, righteousness, and equity, what can a righteous person hope to do? The answer has already been given, at least from the perspective of David's conversation partner. His answer is, flee like a bird to your mountain. Retreat. Go to that safe place. It's not safe here. Doesn't David's conversation partner raise very reasonable concerns? Aren't they even based in reality? 
at some level. Wicked people really do exist in this world. And they really do wicked things. Christians ought not be surprised that those who are lost and living in darkness commit deeds of darkness. They not only work in the dark, but they are at war with the righteous. Even if they're not trying to take out righteous individuals specifically, they're often quite happy just to aim the bow in the darkness and take whatever they can get. They aim at undermining the very foundations of society, not so that justice will prevail, but so that they will. When we reflect on this conversation of real concern between David and his interlocutor, we come to the realization that David's day and our own day are not all that different. Many things which are occurring in our culture are somewhat rumbling the foundations. Remembering this idea of earthly foundations that pertains to the order of the society and that this order has been established by God at creation, we can see how some movements taking place in our own current cultural context seek to undermine the foundations. This is evident with regard to how our culture thinks about things like ultimate truth, biological sex and sexual identity, marriage and family, protecting defenseless babies and aging adults, compassion toward the poor and socially downcast, the lack of protection of private property, and the marginalization of minorities. Both extremes on the right and the left, if we must use those terms, both extremes can do damage to the foundation of the created order. And, and the sheer amount of bulldozers which have pulled up to the cultural house and begun their work can make believers say, well, well what can the righteous do? Is the answer to run, like David's interlocutor suggested? Should we, should we get off the grid? Should we flee to the nearest place where we can buy farmland in order to try and form our own society? Maybe we shouldn't Maybe we shouldn't go that far. How are we going to live without a cell phone signal after all? Uh, maybe, let's just dial it back a little bit. Maybe we should just limit our interaction with those who are not part of the people of God as much as possible. We'll, you know, we'll go out and work. We'll go to the grocery store. Let's just not develop too many relationships with people outside of our church community. Is that what we should do? There's still yet another kind of flight that's possible. We could so camouflage ourselves with the characteristics of the surrounding culture that they won't know to shoot in our direction. Children, youth, young adults, do you find yourself just trying to kind of blend in at school or on your sports team instead of being the strange Christian kid? How about you, grown adult, mature Christian? Do you kind of blend in at your workplace, the other places you gather? Is the answer to run, or is the answer to take refuge in the Lord, like David confessed? If the answer is to take refuge in the Lord, then what is the ground of our confidence? What was the ground of the confidence of David's confession of faith? Why could David take refuge in God? This is what we turn to consider next. This is our second point, confidence. In verses 4 to 6, this 
conversation with real concerns gives way to the ground of confidence for those who take refuge in God. So let's read Psalm 11, verses 4 to 6. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Nearly every phrase in these verses undercuts the fearful proposition put forward by David's conversation partner in the previous verses. Not only do these verses undercut his arguments, but they strengthen the believer's reasons and resolve to take refuge in God. Here we are reminded that the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. This single sentence reminds us of our Lord's character and our Lord's control. That He is in His holy temple reminds us of His character, that He is holy. In and of Himself, He is perfectly pure and free from sin and wickedness. He is also full of righteousness, goodness, and truth. He dwells in a holy place because He is holy. He makes that place holy. It is His presence which makes heaven a holy temple. And because He is holy, He must necessarily despise the wickedness that He sees on earth. This is our Lord's character. And His holiness also characterizes His rule. The one who is reigning on heaven's throne is in control of all things that happen on earth. Indeed, His eyes see. He sees Everything. There is nothing that he does not see. However we understand this phrase, his eyelids test the children of man, we must understand it in relation to the truth that he sees. Just as the phrase, the Lord is in his holy temple, is set in parallel and complementary juxtaposition to the phrase, the Lord's throne is in heaven, so there is a parallelism that exists between the Lord's eyes seeing and his eyelids testing the children of man. These ideas, they explain one another. They fill out each other's meaning. For my part, I think it's best to understand this is a kind of critical squinting that's occurring. You know how you will sometimes kind of squint your eyes a little bit to see something you wish to see better? You want to bring something into sharper focus, so you squint. And you know what happens when you squint? Well, your eyelids become more engaged in your seeing. I think that's the idea here, a kind of sharp and critical examination with the eyes of the Lord. Bound up with this idea of testing, in verse 4, is the idea of examination. God is not tempting anyone to despair or depravity here. He doesn't do that, as we learned earlier from our reading in the book of James. No, what we are seeing here is a poetic description of the truth that the children of man which is to say all of mankind, both the righteous and the wicked, are undergoing an intense examination from the eyes of the Lord. Far from being dispassionate with regard to what is taking place on earth, the earth in which the Lord rules, the Lord is intensely interested and aware. And what is interesting is that in a psalm that is trying to answer the question, what should the righteous do when they are facing the threats of the wicked? The very next line of this poem reminds us that the righteous 
minds the righteous, the Lord is testing them. To, to deepen our appreciation of what is being expressed here, we need to recognize that the, the tense of this word test in the original language is meant to convey the idea that the Lord is testing His people and that He will continue to test His people. He is examining their response. He's examining the response of the righteous to their circumstances and He will continue to examine their response. The Lord wants to know, how will my people respond, react to the injustice, the uncertainty, and the aggression of the wicked? The Lord is no doubt testing David in this circumstance. And what do tests do? They reveal our knowledge. Don't they reveal what they know? What did David know? Didn't he know that the Lord was a refuge? Verse 1. Didn't David know that the Lord could be trusted in times of trouble? What do you think was the Lord's response to that kind of faith? A faith that so deeply honored Him. Was it not love? Wouldn't the Lord see this kind of faith and be delighted with the people He loves? Faith honors God, glorifies God. The New Testament reminds us that our faith is tested too. Though the Lord does not tempt us to despair or depravity, He does test our faith through various kinds of trials. We heard about that from the book of James. Let's hear about it from the Apostle Peter. In fact, keeping one finger here in Psalm 11, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want us to read verses 6 to 9. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 1014. 1014 of the Bibles provided. In this section, 1 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter is telling Christians... He's telling those who, by faith, are living like exiles, strangers in this foreign land that is the world, that God is spiritually keeping and protecting them. He's telling them, in his own words, that God is a refuge. They are facing trials, but God is at work in the midst of them. So read now 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We're going to come back to this heavenly hope at the end of Psalm 11. But notice here that trials and testing are necessary so that a believer's faith may be proved genuine and so result in the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus Christ. Well, turning back to Psalm 11, are we seeing from this psalm that David's faith was genuine. And doesn't it honor the Lord? The testing of David's faith reveals that he trusted God. On the other hand, what, what would the Lord's test, his examination of the wicked, reveal? Well, the Lord's response to his examination of the righteous is left implied and understood. The Lord's response to his examination of the wicked is made explicit. We see it in the second half of verse 5. His soul hates the wicked. 
and the one who loves violence. Are those not sobering words? I'm sure you've, you've heard the expression, God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. But is that what the second half of verse 5 communicates? Does the second half of verse 5 communicate that God hates the wickedness, but that he loves the wicked? Until the wicked repent of their sin and wickedness, they remain under the wrath of God. Consider what we read in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You know, we might like to think that these two passages, Psalm 11, verses 5 and 6, and John chapter 3, verse 36, are obscure outliers in the biblical witness. But the truth is they're not. God's hatred of wickedness and sin is recounted all over the Scriptures. And so is His hatred of the wicked. It is who He reveals Himself to be. You know, if you were to flip backward just a few Psalms to Psalm 5, and you'd read verses 5 and 6, you'd see that they'd say, You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. God hates. God destroys. God abhors. God hates evildoers and not just evil. More than a decade ago, I spoke at a college group uh, on a university campus here in the area. It was a, a group of Christians who had gathered. And I had, had the audacity to say that the idea that God hates sin but loves the sinner was not true. I told this group of university students that God actually hated sin and the sinner. He was not merely going to cast the sin into hell, but the sinner into hell too. Verse 5, especially the second half, is not palatable in our world. It's hardly palatable in the evangelical church. Would you be surprised if I told you those statements that I made to an evangelical Christian campus group were not well received? They weren't. But be honest with yourself for a moment. It's a hard truth to swallow, isn't it? Let's go down the rabbit hole just a little bit further. Look at verse 6. It is not enough for God's hatred of the wicked, wickedness and wicked to be an attitude. There is also action. There will be action. This is why David prays in verse 6, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. You see, the, the wicked will one day drink the cup of God's wrath. We know that this will happen one day in full. And we've, given, we've been given previews of this throughout human history. God judged wickedness and the wicked in the flood. God rained down coals upon the wicked and the wicked at Sodom and Gomorrah. God punished the Canaanites for their wickedness and sin in the conquest. It is a hard truth to take in, let alone believe and make the ground of your confidence and hope before God. And yet I will tell you this, if verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 11 are not true, then the upright in heart, 
The righteous, those who believe in God, have no refuge. If God is to love perfectly, then He must hate all that is opposed to love. This must be borne out in action, and not merely in disposition. You see, the ground of David's hope is the inflexible love, the inflexible justice, the inflexible holiness and righteousness of God. In fact, it is our only hope. And this is what we turn to consider now, as we turn to consider our third and final point, commission. Here we're especially considering verse 7. Read Psalm 11, verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright in heart shall behold His face. At the end of the day, what we are seeing here is that David's confidence lies entirely outside of himself and what he can do. His confidence rests solely in God. Or to put it in the words of a wonderful hymn, When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. How can that be? How does a person become an upright person who will one day behold his face, as the end of verse 7 says? If we know our own hearts, we know that we are not perfectly upright. No, there are dark places in our hearts that are bent down and mangled with darkness and sin. How can people like us, unholy people, be welcomed into God's holy and righteous temple? If all this is true, and it is, then how can we even hope to see His face? The answer is found in the truth that the Lord is both righteous and that He loves righteous deeds. The righteous Lord of heaven came to earth. The eternal Son of God became man by taking to Himself a true human body and soul. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. His name was Jesus. And He lived the perfectly righteous life that we have not. Every thought, every word, every deed was a righteous deed. That's the kind of righteousness that God's law required. And let's be honest, it's not even the kind of righteousness to which you and I have aspired. His righteous Father, God in heaven, loved every single one of those righteous deeds. God the Father even told us this when He said from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was in effect saying, I love His life. I love that He came to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, and yet He gave up His life on the cross to pay the punishment that was due to sinners like you and me. Taking the punishment that our own sins deserved, He gave up His life so that ours might be spared. Jesus took the Father's wrath. Verse 6, He took the coals and the cup that should have been our portion. He drank the cup of God's wrath for our sin until there was nothing left for us. Because His justice is inflexible. 
It required everything. So you see, on the cross, there was, there was a most marvelous exchange. Jesus took upon Himself our unrighteousness, our guilt, our sin, and our shame. And yet even in the last moments of His life, with His enemies gathered around His cross, saying to His soul, what can the righteous do? He saved others. He cannot even save Himself. Come down from the cross. Flee. With His last words, He told the world that He would take refuge in God, His Father. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In his final words, Jesus was telling us that God the Father was worthy of faith, even in the darkest moments. God the Father is worthy of trust, even when the wicked have bent their bow and fitted the arrow and struck the upright right in the heart. With his last words of trust in God, Jesus told us, told the world, that even when the foundations of society are unraveling and injustice is ruling, that we do not flee to the mountains, but to the maker of the mountains. Three days after his death, God the Father, he raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he really is righteous and that he loved every one of the righteous deeds of his Son. And in order to be counted among the righteous, in order to be called the upright in heart and behold His face, we must place our faith in God the Son, who trusted God the Father to the end and through the end. And when we believe that Jesus lived for us, the righteous life that we have not lived, that He died for us, drinking the cup and taking the coals of God's wrath for our sin, and that He was raised from the grave, in a triumphant vindication of righteousness and justice, we receive all of His righteous deeds as our own. In faith, we hide ourselves in Him. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you turn from your wickedness and sin and come to Him in faith today? Take refuge in Jesus today and on the last day, you will behold the face of the righteous Lord. And rather than smite you in your wickedness, He will smile upon you and be glorified by the testimony of your faith. God is honored and glorified by the faith of those who take refuge in His Son, Jesus Christ. So take refuge in Jesus Christ. And if you want to think and talk more about this, that what it means to take refuge in Jesus Christ, to be saved from God's wrath, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Or talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important than you can think about this morning than this good news, that Jesus has consumed the cup of God's wrath for those who trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, this is our commission until the consummation, until Jesus Christ returns. Our commission is to remember that our God is righteous and that He loves righteous deeds. We must trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And we must imitate Him in His righteous life. We perform the righteous deeds that God requires of us, not so that we might be saved, but so that others might know the saving power of God. We do this individually, but also corporately, as we walk together in brotherly love. 
Individually, our lives testify that we take refuge in Christ, but corporately, that testimony, our witness, is amplified. Do not forsake this assembly at which we corporately proclaim that Jesus is our refuge and strength. There is still yet another aspect to our commission in Psalm 11. Did you notice that in Psalm 11, David answers the man who said to his soul, what can the righteous do? Psalm 11 in and of itself is an answer. It is a testimony to the truth of God's character, His control, and His compassion. Brothers and sisters, we are those whom our God has commissioned to give an answer, to testify to His righteous character, His sovereign rule, and His gracious mercy. Whatever options are available to us in our cultural moment, silence is not one of them. Beware of the deceptively reasonable appearance of a treat, even if it is couched in the terms of just for a season. Whatever we can do to help it, let us not leave this community without a vibrant and vocal witness. Our commission is to take refuge in Jesus Christ until we behold Him face to face. And this is where I'd like us to conclude. Perseverance in the faith is energized by the promise of verse 7, that we will see Him face to face. Seeing our Savior face to face is not merely a hope, but a certainty. The upright shall behold His face. This reminds me of the promise we read about in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where the Apostle John said, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. One day we will see our God and Savior. Is not seeing His face worth all that we have and all that we are? Whatever it will cost us, it will be worth it. Thousands of Christians have gone before us and they know that this is true. This past week I was reading over some of the testimonies of those who were killed for taking refuge in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. I'm happy to commend to you J.C. Ryle's little volume, uh, Five English Reformers. I was struck by what I read about Roland Taylor. For 10 years, he served as the pastor of the church in Hadley, which is about 50 miles outside of London. It was a small and seemingly inconsequential post, but the Roman Catholic queen and Bishop Gardner had gotten wind of his preaching that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Roland Taylor, he was called to report to London. And interestingly, the good Dr. Ryle reports that, quote, when, he's, when the summons arrived, Roland Taylor's many friends tried in vain to persuade him to fly to the continent to save his life. But they had no more effect on the good old man. Sounds to me like David's refusal to flee in Psalm 11. So, Roland Taylor, he promptly reported to London, never, return, never to return to his hometown until the day of his death. Consider the parting words of a brother who was condemned to die. Consider whether or not he found Christ to be worthy of his faith and life. Five days before his martyrdom, he wrote this to his wife and children and congregation. I say to my wife and to my children, the Lord gave you unto me, and the Lord hath taken me from you and you from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
I believe that they are blessed which die in the Lord. God careth for sparrows and for the hairs of our heads. I have found him more faithful and favorable than is any father or husband. Trust ye therefore in him by the means of our dear Savior Christ's merits. Believe, love, fear, and obey him. Pray to him, for he hath promised to help. Count me not dead, for I shall certainly live and never die. Five days before his death, Queen Mary ordered Roland Taylor to be burned at the stake for trusting in the righteous deeds of Jesus Christ alone for his salvation and proclaiming that truth. On his way to the stake, Taylor was made to walk through the streets of Hadley, the place where he had pastored. The streets were lined with those to whom he had preached and taught for the last ten years. When he came to the stake, he gave his boots away so that a poor working boy could use them. And then he gave his clothes away. He kissed the stake and prayed, Merciful Father of Heaven, for Jesus Christ, my Savior's sake, receive my soul into your hands. And then he beheld the face of God, for he had taken refuge in Jesus Christ. Have you? Let's pray together.